Not only do they get the best Peter Parker back, they also bring back some of the villains that they can reimagine and redo and set the record straight because I'm pretty confident that Jamie Foxx's Electro is going to be better in this version than he was in Amazing Spider-Man. Okay, okay, hang on. Before we go too far, we have to actually explain what the hell we're talking about. So, Ah, come on. People, keep up. Marvel and Sony have jointly announced that they're doing something quite ambitious with the next Spider-Man movie. They're going to be bringing on actors from two previous attempts at the franchise, both the Tobey Maguire one and the Andrew Garfield one, and trying to kind of do a live action Spider-Verse sort of story from the sounds of it. That's what it looks like. And also don't forget that there was talk today that uh, Daredevil from the Netflix series is going to be part of the MCU now and he's going to appear in Spider-Man 3. That'll be his introduction. Yeah, now, yeah. Of course, the, the pedants will uh, point out that Daredevil was always part of the Marvel Universe. He was just never really <laughs> welcomed in because, you know, those sh- the shows from the Defenders series existed on Netflix and they're not really, you know, connected directly with the... They're also very R-rated. There's a bunch of gore and violence in it. So, I mean, we probably will get a less broody, breathy version of Charlie Cox, but I'm looking forward to that for sure, because I think it makes it easier to do a Sinister Six film than, you know, trying to establish, you know, all these villains and all these different films. They're just going to pull the ones that they have already. And so you can get to this like Sinister Six uh, ultimate team up Avengers type I guess franchise wouldn't be the right word, but I'm worried though that the is the entire Spider-Man three going to operate on this structure, or will it just be like quick glimpses of other connected dimensions with other with the the recognizable uh, versions of the characters that we know from previous movies that like you know Tom Holland Spider-Man is kind of moving between dimensions and he kind of looks one way and he sees Tobey Maguire or he looks another way and he sees. Jamie Foxx's Electro, something like that. Yeah, I think that could happen. I think they're kind of, from the sounds of it, it looks like they're trying to follow the footprint of Into the Spider-Verse, which is still one of like the best animated movies I've seen in, in quite some time. I, I agree with a lot of people in that it's, if not the best Spider-Man movie ever, it's probably like a close second. There's a certain potential pitfall, I guess, that if they go too hard with all of these other versions of Peter Parker and his villains that it, it can kind of crowd it because that's always been a problem with uh, with Spider-Man sequels where they'll put like three villains in a Spider-Man sequel and you won't care about any of them because they'll be hogging the spotlight from each other. But I think it's definitely still going to be like a Tom Holland focus movie. I think we will just find out more about the Spider-Verse, which they kind of teased in Far From Home, right? Because of the plot line where they they find out there's different worlds out there. Uh, there's a tease about it. I can't remember the exact context, but there was. And so I think they're just expanding on that because I think that's where the monsters come from, right? Like alternate universes or something like that. And I guess for him to um, complete the plot of the film, whatever it may be, he has to go through all these multiverses and end up seeing different versions of himself. And I think the end will sort of lay the groundwork for whatever is going to come next, be it, you know, the Sinister Six or even X-Men or or Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also a very convenient kind of retconning type of uh, maneuver because they revealed that J.K. Simmons also plays J. Jonah Jameson in the Tom Holland universe, except he plays him as like a over-the-top Alex Jones analog. And (laughs) uh, so like they can, they it's from a... 
uh, narrative continuity kind of front, they can say, oh, well, it's okay if uh, J.K. Simmons plays him as one version of the character in the Tobey Maguire universe and then as this Alex Jones type in the Tom Holland universe, and people don't have to kind of get too stressed out over the continuity of it. Yeah, exactly. And I I think, I can't believe we took so long to get to this, but Alfred Molina is back as Dr. Octopus, which is the best because he was by far the best villain. Um, I am looking forward to this. So fingers crossed for theaters coming back, but we'll, we'll talk about that after the intro. Yes, because uh, the, the next little bit that we're going to get into uh, really digs into that whole survival of theaters thing. Welcome back to the 87th episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. It's been a little bit of a break for us. We wanted to space out the episodes so that we could cover some new releases this month. But in this episode, we're going to be getting into the news that's all over Hollywood at the moment, the Warner Brothers 2021 slate, get into that and what it means for the future of movie going. And we'll catch up with the past few episodes of The Mandalorian on Disney+. And then we'll touch on a couple of those releases that we were waiting on, namely the new David Fincher movie Mank on Netflix and the new Darius Martyr film Sound of Metal on Amazon Prime. This is Robert Snow coming to you from Toronto and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. So yeah, this Warner Brothers thing, I saw the headlines come out. And at first I didn't, I I don't think I took it as seriously as I should have Hmm? because why not? I don't know. In a pandemic world, I was kind of like, I I guess the, the news that Warner brothers was going to be doing a day and date release of all of their 2021 movies, including big stuff like Dune. And I guess my initial reaction was just like, Oh, I guess that makes sense. And I, I didn't really think through the impact that that would have across the, the the industry. I just kind of assumed that a lot of the other studios would jump in and, and do it. But I was very wrong on that because it's really lit a match under uh, a whole bunch of different connected industries in Hollywood. And it's got a lot of people very, very angry, namely a lot of agents and managers and people who stand to make profits off of the box office performance of certain movies. <laughs> of course. Um, of not course. To, and, uh, and big name directors too, like uh, Christopher Nolan waited in a couple of days after the initial announcement and totally destroyed Warner Brothers with his take on it. Um, but He's starting to get annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, continue. I just had to throw that in. But uh, but but let me know what, what you were thinking of it when you first uh, watched it. Like, did you did you kind of grasp it for the kind of mega news that it was when when you first heard it, or did it take a while to kind of settle in? It took a while because I feel like I'm a little surprised it took them that long to get to this conclusion. I think the basic premise is that they will release on the same day, but they will be on streaming for I think two weeks before they cut it and then leave the theatrical release. And then once the theatrical release is over, then they'll do the home release again. I, that's how I understood it. So I feel like that's a, like kind of a, a compromise between the two. And I don't think it's perfect at all, but I do appreciate that I think movie people 
appreciate having the chance to watch it at home without the extra charge, which I think is the, like, to me, the bigger news that's buried underneath this. Like at some point, all studios, I think, have to consider making a theatrical home release the same date. The reason you had that back then was because I think it took a while for home media to get printed and, and, and shipped out and do all that because theatrical releases were kind of the norm. But without having to charge people that extra dollar like Disney plus did with Mulan, I think really is can like precipitate a lot of these studios getting millions of people to subscribe to their service. And I think um, that's what the end goal is. Right. And I think it's a good gamble. Well, we all kind of like probably felt inherently it was a matter of time, but I don't think it was going to happen quite as soon as it did. But then the the important variable in the whole mix are the exhibitors, the, the theater owners, uh-huh. because for the longest time, they've had a huge um, bargaining chip in that yes. they hold the the final kind of exhibition over a lot of the studios. Less so Disney. Disney is, has proven in recent years that they're willing to play pretty dirty when it comes to getting f- uh, favorable terms for their shows. But then the thing that Disney... I don't think they're dirty. I think they're ruthless, but... Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it. But the, <laughs> the, thing that, the thing that Disney has on their side is that they have comparatively fewer theatrical releases per year. You know, uh, Warner Brothers is thinking of doing uh, they've got a 17 film slate for this coming year. But then Disney will make like less than 10. I think it's closer to around like six or seven, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So Disney's a bit of a of an outlier in that sense. They're so big, they can kind of change the conversation. But then the question is, what would the other studios do? You know, if an exhibitor decided that they weren't going to play any Warner Brothers movies as an act of protest, um, you know, would the other studios fall in line with what the exhibitor wanted or would they back up Warner Brothers? And and then in the midst of everything else, you've also got these folks like the agents and the managers who make money off of how well their clients do. Mm -hmm. If an actress like Gal Gadot books a deal with Warner Brothers saying that she makes a certain amount of money up front, millions of dollars, but then she makes a back-end amount of money, also millions of dollars, that's contingent on how well Wonder Woman 1984 does. If Warner Brothers does a day-and-date release, she stands to lose quite a bit of money because, obviously, if it's available at the same day on HBO Max, the movie is just not going to make as much in the theater. So now you've got like agents and managers running around Hollywood trying to convince Warner Brothers to buy out these back end deals for their talent so that uh, not only are the actual actors and directors happy, but then the agents and managers can get their percentage. Two points about that. First one, um, this kind of falls in the trap of millionaires bitching about losing millions. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, these these most of the time, if you can get like negotiate a cut of the box box office, it means you have quite a bit of pull and like the movie does depend quite a bit on you. So usually it's only the elite who can command that kind of clause. And so these people, you know, in base salary are still getting paid millions already. So sometimes it's hard to sympathize from, I think, a public point of view. Um, The second is just Hollywood in general is just so cutthroat and competitive. I think this could all be resolved if 
at the end of the day, all their goals are aligned. Their goal is to make as much money as possible. And the sooner they figure out that maybe they could work together to achieve that goal, maybe, you know, the sooner we can reach a conclusion. But in my sense, with, you know, the amount of egos and money that gets thrown around in, in that industry, I don't think there will be a lot of compromise or teaming up to be done. I think Warner Brothers took a huge gamble and I think all the other studios are probably just going to wait and see how it turns out because we're not too far away from Wonder Woman, right? Yeah. If HBO Max can get a lot of subscribers and down the road, maybe movie stars and agents will negotiate viewership on streaming services as well as part of their compensation. It seems a little rushed for other studios to make a decision either way. If I was like the head of any other studio, I'd say, you know what, let's wait and see how this turns out. I am pretty hopeful that Warner Brothers is going to pull it off. Um, but I'm not sure. The other part is theater. So like I, on a personal level, I don't care much about the big corporations like Cineplex or Cineworld. I always prefer like the neighborhood or the independent theater. If, you know, a lot of theaters go out of business, I think that's just like a changing of the times. It's just something I have to accept. Um, I'm not going to stop going to movies. Of course. Um, just because, you know, I can stream at home. I actually like going to theater and I'm sure you do too. Oh, of course. So they'll always have that business. But it's the same as people who like reading on Kindle. I can't ever do it. I have to read a physical book. So it, I think going to the movies just becomes like a niche activity, like going to a used bookstore. It's just like something that very few people do. But if it's there... It's not completely gone. People who are getting on Twitter and saying it's the absolute death of movie theaters, they're all going to be closed. It really isn't. I mean, it's not. It's going to become more of a boutique thing where you see, you may not see like in a major city, you may not see five or six downtown multiplexes, each with 10 or more screens. You might see like one or two of them each with like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, five screens or fewer or something like that. And it just becomes something that for the hardcore fans who like that experience, it obviously means that that industry is going to shrink a lot. But Honestly, I think a lot of exhibitors kind of saw that coming. You know, they'd already started launching their own streaming solutions and um, video on demand platforms and things like that. And the, the margins are the margins obviously aren't quite what they would be in in full size exhibition. But but I was also going to say, I mean, like, I guess they're adapting now, but they are in reality late to the game. Like they should have done this oh, you know, yeah, five, ten time. years ago, at least. Right. I, I got to say, too, like as Canadians, we get screwed on this, don't we? A little bit. Yeah, because I don't think we get Wonder Woman uh, on release day and because of God knows what happened with the negotiation or CRTC or whatever it may be, uh, Canadians who subscribe to HBO Max on Crave also may not get movies on release day. And I think that is such a terrible oversight, a lack of care when it comes to your viewers. Like how can you negotiate something and pay for something full price but not get the entire service, right? I mean, I feel like they will they will close that gap. I think if um, I'm not confident, man. I, I, yeah, it's still it's still very much up in the air, and obviously we're not in the rooms where these negotiations are going down. But I feel like Warner Brothers is not going to shut out an entire market, even if we're only like 30, 30 odd million people. Yeah, we're not. The Canadian market is still big enough that it's worth their while to a certain extent. So I think they would they will try to work that out, whether that means like for the first little while, we just have that kind of home premiere rental system where it's available on VOD for the first two weeks, but you still have to pay $20 up front, you know, and you it's not part of a Crave membership or whatever. They might go that route. 
like I, I already pay full price for Crave, right? So they they already have my money. If they want to say, you know what, too bad, screw you. You have to go see it in theaters. Well, I mean, I can't do anything. That's more money to them. So that's always also a possibility. And I mean, honestly, we don't even know how long this uh, day and date thing that Warner Brothers is doing uh, will stick around because they do have various guilds like the like just today, the Directors Guild sent a strongly worded letter. There's been talk of like lawsuits being brought against them for doing this because uh, yeah, I hope they have good lawyers, you know, Warner Brothers. We also have to get to the heart of this argument. What are your thoughts about Chris Nolan's arguments and which side are you on? Are, like, are you pro WB? Or are you more like, you know, Nolan? I mean, obviously I've, I've loved Christopher Nolan's movies. I was, I feel like I was, Suck up. I was <laughs> <laughs> basically Nolan said that, uh, I think the, his, one of his more memorable quotes, um, in the interview he gave was that everyone went to bed last week. Um, thinking that they were working for the most talent-friendly studio in Hollywood, only to wake up the next day to discover that they were working for the worst streaming service. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that's pretty strong, like words from Chris Nolan. But but he, I think he's always been really quite cutting with his comments. Like he doesn't talk much, but when he does say something, it's it's you know pay attention because he's he's yeah. really saying something. So and obviously you know the, theatrical exhibition is near and dear to his heart. It's like it's the the one thing that for, that uh, you know made it so that Tenet came out when it did, and he he was going to use it as an experiment just to see COVID cases be damned, basically. So. I don't know. I'm not, I'm definitely not fully on team Nolan on this one. I think he's, he's being a little bit of a, a retro kind of guy on this. He's not really seeing the value of, um, home streaming. He's not kind of plugged into the way people are watching movies these days. He's also not plugged in the fact that Jesus Christ, we're still getting outbreaks. Why are you telling people to go to theaters? Yeah. Like it's easy for, for big directors like Nolan who get, you know, back end deals and things like that to say, oh, you know, I'll just sit around for a couple of years and wait for the cases to blow over. But there's a lot of little folks in the mix who, who are saying like, yeah, it's, it's, it's all right for you to, to insist on this kind of purist take on the way to see movies. But in the meantime, there's a lot of folks hurting. It's just kind of like an evolution of business, like how we went from the studio model in Hollywood to like actors being able to move around. And and now this where people consume their content a lot differently and more at home. Um, I'm totally pro Warner Brothers on this as a consumer, as a competitor. I can I'd be nervous as someone who works at Warner Brothers. I'd be nervous because if this doesn't go well, it could cost me my job. But as a consumer, like, yeah, I think this is long overdue. I, I really think it is as a consumer. I would gladly pay to watch it at home for, you know, a decent amount of money if I can get it on release day. Oh, yeah. I think when directors bitch about, you know, oh, the sound quality won't be the same. Oh, the image quality won't be the same because, you know, people don't have those kind of systems at home. I think that it's, it's, it's borderline Tarantino where he's like, you know, film should be this and, you know, uh, digital should be that. I get the purest argument, but I mean, to some people, the story and being able to watch it matters more than, you know, the sound quality, the image quality that they may not get. No, This is Nolan being saying like, I want it to watch you this way and this way specifically because that's what it's meant to do. Yeah. And sometimes you're just like, you know what, Chris, I can't. And I don't really want to. Um, I may, but please give me that choice. I, th- I think that's the sort of friction there. Yeah, a hundred percent. And he he just seems to be saying like, oh well, a movie only exists when it first comes out. <laughs> yeah, that's just ridiculous. Anyone who wants to rewatch it after it leaves theaters, assuming a 
you know, the older model is, is in play. Anyone who's watching it after the fact, uh, any of those screenings are not worth it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, if he was so adamant about this, why didn't he film the entire Batman trilogy in IMAX? Like cost be damned, right? Yeah. And like, and force, force theaters to only exhibit it in an IMAX and not make any prints of it in any other format. Yeah. So yeah, I don't buy it. But anyway, let's move on to happier things. Mandalorian. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, it's been, okay, we need a say what, what's, what would be a segue from Chris Nolan or Batman? Batman to Star Wars. Mm, speaking of streaming shows. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of streaming shows, it's been three weeks since our last episode, as we mentioned in the intro. So mm. uh, there's been a lot happening on The Mandalorian in those three weeks. He needs your help. The Jedi Order fell a long time ago. So did the Empire, yet it still hunts him. Long live. The Empire. Long live the Empire. I have to hand it to Jon Favreau and the crew on this show. Unlike some shows out there, they are not stringing us along and teasing us with little bits of information that they don't plan to deliver on for seasons to come. They are, (laughs) um, you know, I think Favreau said back in when the first season was was uh, dropped on Disney Plus, that he was going to tell us what the child's name was in this season. He was going to get more into the lore and all of this thing. And these past few episodes have really uh, layered all of that on. There's not, I would argue, there's not a huge amount to say about the episode with Carl Weathers and Gina Carano. Gina Carano uh, that was set back on... Um, Ravana is that the name of the planet? The lava planet? I, I can't remember. Yeah, it's the planet where you know they escape through that grate, and he meets the rest of the the uh, Mandalorians. Yeah, that that planet. So, um, did we not talk about that episode? Well, that, that was like the the end of season one. So I don't think you'd watched any of it by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that ages ago. Yeah, the episode where where they all help him like survive the onslaught from uh, Moff Gideon and all that. But they go back to that planet. Yeah, but I'm talking about the the part where they go back to the planet and find. That that sort of like lab or whatever it is. Did we not talk about that episode yet? No, no, we didn't. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, that was, I, I mean, Star Wars has a point, like uh, the basic premise of each episode is the same. They go to one planet, they complete a mission, they find more facts or they find more tasks and then they go to another planet by the end or they head to another planet by the end of the episode and it just goes on and on and on and on, right? Yes, yeah. And so like what's new this time though is this is the first I believe it's the first live action Ahsoka Tano, right? Yes, uh, definitely. Yeah, so we meet her. We find out Baby Yoda's name, which is Grogu is a bit weird, don't you think? It's a lot less cute than I thought it'd be. I guess. I mean, it, uh, it makes sense. It's an alien sounding name. Grogu sounds like a Russian dish that you, you know, <laughs> ate back in like the 1918 <laughs> Borscht? Grogu? <laughs> gruel. Maybe I'm thinking of gruel. Maybe that's why. But it's just like, it's a funny name for something so cute. But I I thought overall, like it's very action oriented, eh? Like we haven't had a lot of like progress in terms of plot because, you know, now they're just jumping one from one planet to another, except for the most recent one where Grogu gets taken away. Yeah. So spoilers ahead. If, uh, if you haven't caught up where we're a couple spoilers of spoilers ahead, we just gave up a spoiler, but I mean, by now you should be caught up. I feel like so. Yeah. I mean, come on. We're, we're talking about the Mandalorian here. The, the past three episodes are out. I mean, I have to hope that, uh, you're looking ahead in the, 
show notes, which we very helpfully put in the description of these podcast episodes. Mm. So, you know, uh, for future reference, go down there and skip to a time code that makes sense to you um, if you <laughs> want to stay totally spoiler free. But anyway, yeah, so that uh, that episode with Carl Weathers uh, takes place. Then the episode that we're on right now, we're talking about the Jedi. So that's uh, uh, that's the name of the episode, the Jedi chapter 13, I believe. Yeah, and yeah. so that that one brings us Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka Tano, who up until now had just been an animated only character. Um, and of course, in the comics and video games and things like that. That's the real info dump. Uh, of an episode where yeah sorry i sped through the, the entire <laughs> thing but i just kind of want to get to the end because uh like the most recent episode the one where grogu gets taken we, i mean it had to happen right like it, there's no way the, he could they could not be separated and still go on this journey without you know like going on some sort of character art they, they need to be apart right sure yeah um and and i think it's like a trope where like if you think about Batman, um, I remember one of the things that Chris Nolan said about the Dark Knight was that the Batmobile, the Tumblr, had to be destroyed. And so that's what happened with Mando's ship. Uh, what's it called again? The Razor Crest. Right, the Razor Crest. So that's like a real turning point in, in, in a lot of, I think, um, superhero films where like the, the vehicle, the craft is sort of like a side character because it, it kind of eliminates his the partner he depends on the most. And I think it gives the audience something like a real genuine shock because when the Batmobile gets destroyed and when Razorcrest gets destroyed, there's a bit of a shock, an emotional hit that you get. Yeah, and it um, it definitely gives Moff Gideon's character a bit more teeth because it shows that he's not hmm. he's he's taking whatever tactics or he's using whatever tactics are available to him. And we know in that episode, you know. Uh, at first, it feels like the Mandalorian who's teamed up with dun, da, 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 Boba Fett. Who um, is badass for once. Finally. Yeah, I was I, I wondered if you were going to bring that up. But yeah, he, <laughs> the, the battle, the battle is going in the Mandalorian's favor. You know, they're knocking out all of these uh, useless stormtroopers with a with the help of uh, Fennec Shand and and Boba Fett. And it feels like they're going to save be able to protect Grogu who's in his doing his Jedi uh, meditation. Yeah, I don't know what that is like. And (laughs) and so they you know, the the tide of the battle is is turning in the hero's favor. But then, hey, I mean, Moff Gideon's floating up there with a mini Star Destroyer and he's got big uh, laser cannons on it. So why not, you know, take a pot shot at the Razor Crest to to screw up uh, their their life? It's although you uh, you begin to wonder, though, if if he can take a pot shot at the Razor Crest, why doesn't he take a pot shot at the Slave One? Boba Fett's ship. Well, I mean, this is like the biggest irony uh, when it comes to Star Wars, right? Like at some point, the characters make irrational and illogical decisions for the plot to continue. Yes. Yeah. Like I I think one of the points where Gideon's like elite guard comes down, like drop down from their ship and they surround Grogu and they're basically taking him away. Mando appears just in the nick of time, but you know, as they're taking Grogu away on these like rocket jetpacks that they have, Mando, who also has a jetpack of his own, is on the ground and he's just like sitting there or standing there for like a good, you know, 10 seconds thinking, you know what, maybe I'll just stay down here, even though he's arguably like, you know, the best Mandalorian in the universe other than Boba Fett. Um, I just thought that was one of those things where like, okay, you're clearly just making him wait until 
to rescue Grogu so you can, you know, produce a couple more episodes. Yeah. Yeah. They're obviously stringing things out a little bit. I mean, I know I, I started yeah. the segment by giving Favreau and, and company kudos for, you know, <laughs> it's a great show. It's still a great show. Yeah. But obviously they're, they, they are very much at the, at the mercy of certain screenwriting kind of tropes where they have to, yes, they have yes. to kind of do the rising and falling action and all of that. Yeah, exactly. That's why they had to destroy the Razor Crest. So I guess we've reached the, the point of this Mandalorian segment where, you get to ask for Wikipedia stuff. <laughs> I didn't really have any questions. I didn't know this segment was going to be a thing. <laughs> you got to warn me ahead of time. I do have a question, though. Okay. Or several questions, I guess, because... It's See, I knew of, it. I knew it. Well, I, I figured I'd just wait and ask you or, or wait until you prompt me. Um, okay. Ahsoka Tano, what's her deal, man? Like, what? who is she when we meet her now? Post uh, Return of the Jedi. So Mandalorian takes place around like, uh, I think it's four or five years after after episode six. So yeah, five years. What, where we're kind of at right now from what I've read um, on Wikipedia um, and elsewhere <laughs> is that uh, Ahsoka, we're, we're catching up with Ahsoka after the events of the animated show Star Wars Rebels, which saw um, okay, yeah. Ahsoka pop up after she'd been in exile for decades basically um and she joins up with a bunch of uh, fledgling rebels and helps them defeat a senior imperial commander the kind of the top dog in the imperial navy that's uh, grand admiral thrawn right he's big he's the blue guy right he's the blue guy with the red eyes and he's you know he was created back in the 90s for a series of uh, novels and he's gonna be on the show he's gonna be on the show and a lot of fans have, have spent a lot of time obsessing over thrawn because he's like he's one of the big bads he's up there Pretty much with Vader and the Emperor when it comes to like his level of influence in the Star Wars universe. Really? And a lot of people praise a lot of people praised his like the the introduction of that character because they felt like, you know, we needed a military officer in the Empire <laughs> to kind of be a villain. Someone someone who wasn't just like running around in a gray suit and getting shot at by our heroes, you know. Not Grandma um, Tarkin. <laughs> yeah, because obviously Tarkin Tarkin had uh, bit the dust a bit earlier. But this, this is why like the use of um, Rogue One, the villain in Rogue One, it was such a waste. Ben Mendelsohn, he could have been like a big military baddie, but they screwed it up. Well, no, it's it's interesting, actually, that director Krennic, the Mendelsohn character from uh, Rogue One, he he's actually styled very much the way Thrawn would be like uh, he wears that like yeah, yes. elite white uniform, all of that stuff. So I think it almost like it was a Krennic was a bit of a nod to Thrawn, I think, in in that movie. But okay, uh, so yeah, uh, Ahsoka had helped defeat Thrawn and cast him out into this uh, unknown region of space alongside one of the heroes of Star Wars Rebels, and they've basically been missing for years. And so when we catch up with Ahsoka Tano on the Mandalorian, she's still searching for her friend, that, that rebel. And she knows that because the, the rebel Ezra Bridger was cast off into space with Thrawn, she fought, figures if she can find Thrawn, she'll find her friend Ezra. Uh, fan casting you want to do for Thrawn? Thrawn, you know, Thrawn is kind of, I don't know Thrawn that well, but he always gives off that, you know, like, that really sinister, but really smart villain vibe. Like the, he's not going to beat you with physical power, right? Like he, he's a thinker and he's a tactician. Yeah. I mean, he's supposed to be pretty well trained with like hand to hand combat. He's supposed to be pretty good at that, but right. But he's like a, he commands like a, a whole fleet. Yeah. Stuff, that's right? always been the, the, the threat he poses. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. So I've always liked Jason Isaacs in those kind of roles. Oh, yeah, I could see that. He's got that angular face for it. I can definitely see Kevin Bacon in this role, actually. As long as you have the right feel, because this will be our first live action depiction of Thrawn, I think you could go in a lot of directions. But I see someone who's tall, skinny, angled chin, uh, really sharp, not a lot of facial expressions kind of type of person in that role. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I saw a few people doing like fan art of Benedict Cumberbatch in the role, but I feel like that's t- too obvious of a choice. I mean, he's already played Khan, so I feel like... And he's never villainous to me. Like, whenever he plays the villain, I'm never threatened by this guy. Your name rhymes with Cucumber Patch. Like, I can't <laughs> take you seriously. Um, my other question is, okay, well, it's kind of like a two-parter, but why does Ahsoka Tano have two lightsabers and why are they white? Ah, yes. So she has a full-size lightsaber and then she has a shorter one that's kind of styled off a, I think it's called a Shoto blade. Yeah, it's like Um, samurai style. Yeah, yeah, it comes from the samurai tradition. And she... She was fighting with two lightsabers way back in Star Wars, the Clone Wars, the, her first appearances on that yes. animated show. Uh, back then, she had a blue and a green lightsaber, I think. Uh, I can't remember which color was which, but uh, that just been the way she'd learned to to fight. And um, it added a little bit of extra kind of visual flair when her character first came on the scene. When she leaves the Jedi Order at the end of Star Wars Clone Wars and kind of goes off on her own, she's sort of she she maintains her like connection to the force and keeps her ability to use force powers and keeps her lightsabers. But in a sort of symbol of her rejection of the Jedi Order, she changes the color of the blades to white. Well, why did you want to want to kick her out again, though? It was late in season six, I think, of uh, Star Wars The Clone Wars. There was another Jedi Padawan who had fallen to the dark side and wanted to use Ahsoka as her fall woman and trumped up some evidence to um, to convince the uh, Jedi High Council that Ahsoka needed to be kicked out. Um, Ahsoka did her own investigation and, you know, revealed the truth of the matter and was offered reinstatement. But... At that point, she had become so disillusioned with the systems that the Jedi was imposing that she kind of said, like, screw this, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And so she's actually, by kind of carrying those white lightsabers, she's sort of the closest thing to that fan theory you had for Rise of Skywalker, where you kind of imagined Rey becoming this uh, person in sort of the middle, who's neither Jedi nor Sith, but is, you know, a a perfectly balanced force user. The Jedi Council being incompetent has always been a thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's that's really interesting because one of the, I feel like one of the most underdeveloped parts of episode one, and it kind of killed it the rest of the the two and three was that they never really like talked about how Qui-Gon Jinn was kind of like this outsider and that he never made the Jedi Council for for like specific reason and that because he questioned some things and he made he did done things that were like you know sort of morally ambiguous so that's though that's super interesting so so Yoda's not that great after all how can you have like a council of you know purportedly the greatest Jedi in the world who are so in tune to force and get duped so easily you know yeah and well that's obviously uh, we talked about this before but the the kind of crucial scene in the last Jedi when Luke is uh, laying it all out and you know kind of <laughs> right. kind of busting up some myths that that Rey had held about the Jedi and all of that that was why, again, why I always return to that scene as like example of yeah, Star Wars doing something new and kind of recognizing the some of the hypocrisies that the characters had uh, back in the day. Um, but yeah, I think like one of the things that's been very clearly developed 
in all of the the other media, like the video games and the comics and the, the animated shows, is that the Jedi are actually, they, they kind of suck. Uh, almost not as bad as the Sith suck, because obviously the Sith are always killing people. <laughs> well, see, I always pick Sith from the start, so... Ha. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, speaking of old stuff, though, this David Fincher film, Mank, that is now on Netflix, is right up your alley. I feel like if there was anyone I wanted to talk to about this film, it'd be you. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it talks, it's old Hollywood, it's black and white, and it's Fincher, and it's a pretty good film, so. Yeah, and uh, so this is the, uh, the direct-to-Netflix movie that Fincher's been working on uh, for a long, long time. Uh, I didn't actually know until I started watching it when I saw a, a credit for uh, Jack Fincher on the screenplay. His dad. As his dad. Yeah. So uh, uh, apparently his dad had worked on this screenplay before he died uh, back in 2003, mm-hmm. I believe, and... Uh, David Fincher took it upon himself to kind of complete his dad's vision. Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankiewicz, but we have to call him Mank. Mankiewicz. Herman Mankiewicz. New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. As a result, the movie is, yeah, I'm probably not alone in pointing this out. Um, it's a pretty big departure for Fincher in terms of the kinds of movies that he usually makes. I mean, he's sort of synonymous with thrillers and very dark, uh, often violent stories. You know, if you think about anything from... Yeah, like the worst parts about the human psyche type stuff. Exactly. And so to do a film that is still very dramatic and dark in places, but still, but more to do with like movie production and old Hollywood definitely feels like a, a break for him. Mm-hmm. I wrote in the review that that's up on the site now and on Letterboxd and elsewhere that it is a, it is a really good movie, but you really have to be a, kind of like a person like me who <laughs> that's, yeah, it's a, I said specifically you. Yeah. It's very has a criterion collection of Blu-rays at home and is a subscriber to the criterion channel, the streaming service and regularly listens to Karina Longworth's podcast. You must remember this, um, things like that. You know, you have to be really deep into the old Hollywood classic cinema nerdery to, uh, to, I think, identify with this movie and to know the players that are being depicted, you know, the, the personality of Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, the guys who were running MGM back in the 30s and 40s, knowing the background of uh, Orson Welles and where he started and where he ended up and uh, all of that. Um but did you had you been familiar at all before you watched this with the history of Citizen Kane coming to the screen? Nope, not a well, I knew a little bit like uh, I knew that the process had been somewhat controversial um, because I think that's just like the first fun fact you learn about Citizen Kane is, you know, who wrote it? Like in regards to the history of Hollywood, the history of California and what it was like back then, no, I had no clue. And I was going to say earlier too that, you know, Fincher films are usually inaccessible for, you know, a variety of reasons. Like you said, it's dark and scary and it's not for everyone. I think this film, even though it is the least violent, it almost has no violence, um, and the sort of, I wouldn't say pleasant, but it, there's definitely not many horror elements in this film. Yeah. Um, I, I find this to be his most inaccessible film of all time. Mm, interesting, yeah. For me, it was hard to get into the plot because it, it took me a while to orient myself. Um, so the way 
Fincher had wrote this screenplay about a story about a screenplay is to sort of have flashbacks and even though and shape it forming the form of sort of a biography of Mank, but it's very slice of life, right? Like it only covers, I think, the the 90 days or something that he wrote the screenplay. Yeah, there other than the flashbacks, which cover a period of a couple of years, but those individual flashbacks yeah. are just like one night, one night or couple hours at a time. The the meat of the movie is the is the writing of the screenplay, which he intended to do in 90 days, but then Orson Welles makes him get it in within 60 days. 60. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, you got the jumping timeline, you got the black and white. You needed an ingrained knowledge of, I think, Hollywood to even care or even know what's going on in this film. Because I think he just kind of drops you in the middle and he expects you to know who, what Mankovich is like, uh, what Mayer was like, what, what, you know, all these characters were like. But from a casual observer like me or someone who's not as well versed in the history, it was hard to get into the story because you're not quite sure where the conflict is because Mankovich and Wells don't share a lot of screen time together. No, no. They talk about each other a lot, but they they rarely ever come face to face. In fact, I don't think even Orson Wells is in it that much. It's it's very much a Gary Oldman show. Yeah, and, and for and if you haven't watched it and you're totally confused about where we actually are in the whole thing, Gary Oldman plays Herman J. Mankiewicz, who's the Mank of the title. He's a uh, known by Mank uh, by his friends. And he's a screenwriter. He had a respected career leading up uh, until he started working on Citizen Kane. He was making $2,500 a week, uh, which in 1934 money equals like about $40,000 US a week. So not, not, but not bad money. You know, he was, he was well, uh, well compensated, you know, working on the MGM lot, uh, churning out screenplays with a team of other guys. Um, but as we see, he's a bit of his own worst enemy. So hmm. uh, starting at around 1934, when those flashbacks are primarily situated, he's increasingly at odds with the very Republican leaning studio bosses, mm -hmm. Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. Uh, you know, Mank is a more progressive politics kind of guy. And he sees how the studio bosses are using all of the resources at their disposal, all the talent, all the money to kind of sway the California governor's election, the gubernatorial election. And Mank is increasingly disturbed by this. He tries to tries various methods of um, of trying to subvert it. But then he crosses paths with William Randolph Hearst, who's the major newspaper tycoon in the movies played by Charles Dance from Game of Thrones. And he discovers that at the end of the day, he's just a screenwriter and he doesn't have a whole lot of clout other than, <laughs> you know, he's kind of popular at parties because he's a quick wit and he can make cutting remarks and entertain people. But as soon as the chips are down and the real power is being handed out, he doesn't have a lot of it. And so he gets increasingly frustrated and the movie suggests that this builds and builds and builds and he alienates more and more of the powerful people around him. Mm -hmm. And in response, he decides to make Citizen Kane about William Randolph Hearst or at least be inspired by. And of course, people have been arguing about this for decades. You know, just how much was Citizen Kane inspired by Hearst and his wife? And as a viewer you really are uh, like your enjoyment of the movie definitely hinges on how many of these little details, you know, uh, how much Wikipedia you want to dive into once the, once the thing is done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. And how much you care about how these, these, this like one little chapter in the 
history of Hollywood and how it might have affect the movies that we're seeing today, if at all. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. So for that, I called it a good film because technically anything Fincher does is excellent, right? So um, I love the cinematography in this. I, I think the script is okay. Um, I think part of it has to do with the plot. The acting is obviously great. Citizen Kane, when it was being written and when it had been written, was it true that it was, you know, like all the execs believed that Mankiewicz had really written the greatest thing ever? I think, yeah, I think on a on a craft level, they probably saw how innovative it was in terms of using flashbacks and stringing together all of these uh, narrative devices and um, all of those things. They probably looked at it and said, wow, yeah, this is unlike pretty much anything that is being made these days. Because you have to remember that Citizen Kane pioneered a whole bunch of uh, storytelling devices that just weren't being used in movies at the time. Right. You know, uh, around that period of time, movies were still seen as like cheap entertainment and you were seeing a lot of like, <laughs> they were very linear. Yeah. yeah. And very linear and very, um, you know, you weren't seeing compression of time or, uh, characters over their whole lives and, uh, or subtext of, uh, of, of any kind. Um, so, so the, the fact that it's all kind of happening in this one big magnum opus is, was probably quite something, but then the question is, and this is what people have been fighting over partially for so long is how much of that was Mank's idea and how much of it was what Orson Welles did to it after he shot it and after he edited it, <laughs> right. because of course, a lot of the stuff in the final Citizen Kane movie happens in editing. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, people have to kind of question like, all right, how many drafts of the script were there? And there have been whole film scholars just like pouring over it for so long because no one can really agree like, you know, how much of a movie's final quality is determined by the first version of the script that's, tur that's turned in. I do think that Fincher makes a note of saying that this was mostly Mank's idea though. To an extent, I do agree with him, but I think um, Citizen Kane, if it was... Pure, like if the genius of Citizen Kane was purely Mank, then that that kind of elides the all of the stuff that that Wells and his uh, production team were doing with the camera and with the performances and all of that. So it's mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a bit tough. And obviously, Wells didn't have the same relationship with William Randolph Hearst that Mank did. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's easy to see how you can kind of go back and forth on it and argue one way or the other. As far as the movie is concerned, it does have some interesting things to say about you know, the writer's place in the process and how much of a contribution they make and how they're valued by the, the movie industry. <laughs> Just drink a lot. <laughs> You'll write a beautiful <laughs> screenplay. Um, yeah. Oh, and, and, but make sure to put sedatives in it so that you can <laughs> get yeah, knocked exactly. Out. Not only that, you have to be a, a compulsive gambler, you have to be insomniac, and you also have to have this like lovely British maid helping you out. What did you make of some of the like uh, the really kind of self-indulgent uh, visual tics that Fincher was including like the, the unnecessary. Oh, like, you know, the burn spot. Yeah. Like the, the cue marks and the, um, the very literal subtitles there are on-screen titles. Right. I, I do think it took away from the movie. I think it fell a, lo a little too much love in itself, but I like, I also feel like this is a pet project for him, like to finish what his dad had started. Right. His dad actually, uh, Jack Fincher, um, also had started writing another screenplay, 
But another person who was famous, and I don't know if you know this, but it ended up becoming a, another movie much, much later, directed by Martin Scorsese. Do you know what it is? No. What is it? The Aviator. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so the origins of The Aviator, from what I understand, it started from a screenplay written by Jack Fincher. Um, so I guess it kind of runs in the family. But yeah, I mean, starting from the fact that this feels very offbeat for David Fincher, not that any of the technique is, is, you know, like he still has this great attention to detail. Um, but it does feel like this is kind of a project that he just wanted to finish for personal and sentimental reasons. And that this isn't really truly representative of what his films are generally like. Did it meet your expectations though? Cause this came in with quite a bit of hype. The one takeaway I had was that even with limited screen time, I thought Amanda Seyfried did really well. Gary Oldman, I thought was fine. He was good as always, but not for me, a particularly outstanding performance. And it kind of fell below my expectations because I guess I had, in my mind, I had to imagine something different because it was David Fincher. Uh, I mean, it is kind of what I expected. I mean, knowing the the topic, I don't think I, I fully wrapped my mind around how different it would be from Fincher's other movies. I just you know, I kind of got wrapped up in the story that they would. <laughs> you nerd. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm biased in that sense, but it's definitely about as good as I expected. I expect now that being the kind of buzzy director driven type of movie that it is, it might get some attention at the awards in a couple months time. It's not a front runner though. No, I wouldn't put it up with like best picture or any, in any of the acting categories, but I can see it being competitive in some of the tech technical ones for sure. Yeah, definitely for something like screenplay or cinematography or, you know, all that technical stuff that Fincher is so good at. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of technical skill in film, the next film we're going to talk about makes really great use of audio and it has to because it's a movie about a metal band drummer who suddenly goes deaf and it's called Sound of Metal. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow and let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Did you watch this? I did. I watched it. I've been... Looking forward to it for some time, actually, because right. it's a 2019 film, right? Like first release. Yeah, it first uh, hit this festival circuit in 2019. It was a TIFF in 2019. I couldn't get into it. I can't remember why. I think the the screenings that they chose for it at the festival didn't work out with the rest of my schedule or whatever. Um, so it, <laughs> damn them schedulers. It kind of it just dropped off the map for the past year. And then Amazon acquired it and uh, our Amazon's putting it forward for, you know, uh, what resembles a, an award season push, basically, um, scheduling it in the early part of December. And you watched it on Amazon Prime. I did not. I thought it was going to be on, on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I was going to say it's not available on. Yeah, if you're in Canada, guys, it's not on Amazon Prime because once again, Canada gets shafted. Yes, I'm very frustrated by this. This also applies to their rollout of the new Steve McQueen movies, uh, Small Axe there, or it's a TV show or a movie. Nobody can agree on what it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, unlike Netflix, Amazon's been doing a thing where they don't always do a, an international release of something across all the, ter the territories on the same day. So I feel like maybe Sound of Metal will eventually pop up on Prime mm -hmm. Video Canada, just not 
when it was available ever, anywhere else. It's, it's really stupid. Um, so it's no, VOD right now. Yeah, it's on VOD and uh, you can rent it for, I think, like six bucks Canadian or something like that. Um, but yeah, I've been after reading the log line on it and then watching the trailer back when it was at TIFF in 2019, wanting to see it all this time. And just because the the hook of the story is so interesting to me, like the right, the yes. idea of a of a heavy metal drummer who suddenly loses his hearing, and what the what that premise can kind of unlock in terms of the performances, because this really is like a performance driven story. It's the the plot is the plot is there, but it's not the uh, the main driver. But it also like the plot wasn't was totally not what I expected. I expected something like Whiplash, where like the main character, despite this adversity, just like powers through and he finally triumphs at the end. Right. But no, it's a very, very quiet film and its use of sound is so deliberate. Um, it is I don't think it does anything groundbreaking, but it, it, it uses it to definitely flesh out uh, this character, Ruben, played by Riz Ahmed, um, who is, I think, really good. Yeah, he really puts in like I could see him being like a uh, in the shortlist for best actor this year for this performance. Yeah, shortlist, I don't I, I feel like Oscars will overlook him just because there's too many other big names, uh, you know, competing for spots, which is too bad because I really think, you know, I would love to see him win for this performance. Uh, he's been doing great work for a long time, too. That's uh, true. He uh, he plays like. So Ruben is a recovering drug addict um, who one day just loses his hearing and Riz, and he's got this like twitch, you know, like how some previous drug addicts have this like compulsive behavior, compulsive personality. Um, he played that really well in Nightcrawler and he kind of brings some of it here. Did you notice that? Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really pick up on like a specific tick or anything, but yeah, the intensity and the kind of hauntedness in his eyes, that was definitely there. There's a scene where he's, at this uh, camp for deaf people and he's asking the camp leader for something and he's kind of twitching and, and his, he's fidgeting about because um, he knows what he's doing isn't, you know, 100% kosher, but he's doing it because he needs it. He needs to to fulfill this this emotion that he has. So the crux of the story is that he and his girlfriend are the two person band and she's played by Olivia Cook. And uh, because he goes deaf, she goes on touring alone, but he doesn't want to leave her. So, but he has no choice and she thinks it's best for him to be at this deaf camp where basically he, he, he learns that even though you've lost something that, you know, you really treasure and need as a, you know, professional musician, um, he gains something else in the end. And that I think was a surprising turn for me. I didn't expect it to be such a quiet contemplative film. Although, I mean, in retrospect, a movie about a deaf person is probably, you know, not noisy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think the the thing that the movie really gets right is Ruben's reaction to his diagnosis, because it really it models after the kind of five stages of grief, like denial, anger, um, bargaining, that whole thing. Mm. And it's it's something that like, you know, if, if you're uh, unlucky enough and you have family members or even you yourself go through uh, a, a serious illness like like Ruben does um, or some kind of disability, you see that exact same thing play out and, and they're kind of grieving over a life that they've lost. Mm -hmm. Even though they're actually like physically alive, they've lost so much. And the the anger with Ruben is, is so palpable and the bargaining sets in when he's 
starts kind of desperately searching for a fix to his solution. Kind right. of like, you know, and this is like where a the drug addict. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the, and uh, the behavior, like the emotions and everything feel very familiar in that sense. So they that's right on the money. Like, I feel like they that was a very smart way to frame it. And what he's being told at this in this program by the the leader, uh, Joe, played by Paul Rassi, I believe is the guy's name, is that, you know, this disability, this loss of hearing is not something that should be fixed. It's something that you have to learn to live with and that, you know, you need to find a sort of inner silence that um, that comes from accepting what's going on. And Ruben, that's the biggest struggle for him. And he starts lashing out and he, you know, he wrecks the the RV where he lives with his girlfriend and he starts investigating surgery that could correct it. And the without spoiling anything, Ruben makes a, d- a decision late in the movie uh, to pursue some of his research. And the the heartbreak on Joe's face when Ruben tells him what he's done. Mm. It's, I mean, Ruben might as well have told him that he had just gone on like an all night heroin binge. Like, the, <laughs> like Joe treats it the same way. And it's uh, like the actor playing Joe, like you really feel it like that. That was, that, that was your Academy award acceptance real. If there, if there was going to be one um, just because the, the, the scene was, was that dramatic. I, I would compare it more to like telling him about the loss of a child. Because I think Riz Ahmed's character really becomes like a big part of his community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but but he has these principles that he cannot compromise in order to preserve the greater good. Um, so this uh, movie is directed by Darius Martyr, and this is his first feature film. He had previously done a documentary before this. And Derek C. on France is credited as one of the writers of this movie. Mm-hmm. And he did uh, The Place Beyond the Pines, which we've talked before on this uh, podcast. And so you do get, once you know that, I think you do get this feeling of like, oh, okay, so it's going to be contemplative. It's going to involve multiple generations. Um, It's going to be a little melodramatic at some times. I think I found the ending a little melodramatic. Fitting, but melodramatic. Did you have any thoughts about that? On the ending, yeah, I mean, they it's obviously open ended and without spoiling anything, you know, they they suggest that Ruben could go in a couple of different ways, you know, once the credits roll. But the lesson he learns from Joe that comes back to him. Yes, it's clear that he's gone through some kind of evolution, which is, you know, kind of essential to the to the development of his character. So I think I think that's good. Exactly. Um, yeah. Did you uh, were you interested that Matthew Almarek makes a cameo appearance or an extended cameo? I know. <laughs> Okay, so I, I didn't know about that beforehand. No, neither did I. I didn't know he was in it at all. But when I when he popped up, I thought of you because I know that uh, you there was one like festival movie you saw with Matthew Elmarek recently that you hated. Yeah, it's like some pretentious French director. <laughs> the movie is called Ismail's Ghosts. Ah, yes. And, okay. <laughs> and I went to see it for Marion Cotillard, but for the entire length of the film, I couldn't help but just want to punch Matthew Almerick. <laughs> so while I was uh, in the process of like ordering this movie, I saw his name pop up on the credits and I was like, please, please don't be a big role. And by the time I get in the movie, like because he doesn't appear in until the very end, basically the final act, um, I was kind of relieved that I didn't see him. But once he, the Riz Ahmed's character goes on this like final journey uh, to find Lou, I was like, okay, all right, I get it. Cause she mentioned she had a European father. Olivia Cook 
is this character who supposedly, or who does, has this Belgian father and, you know, it's, I don't know who her mother is, but um, she talks in a specifically, like, American accent, and it kind of threw me off a little bit. Olivia Cook is, is English herself, but she's been uh, working in, in the States for a while, and I would say she has one of the better um, non-specific U.S. accents for <laughs> someone her age who's originally from the U.K., um, you know, she does, she, she can feel like your average, uh, American 20 something, although, but I, I see what you mean though. There is, um, there are certain vocal things that she does where, you know, you can, you can still pick up, you know, some European background. Mm-hmm. And there's like little details in there. Like for example, her character in the opening shot where they're in the bed, she has like cuts on her arms and yeah. you're like, okay, all right, there's something there. So it, it does make all these characters believable. But again, like, I referenced the place beyond the pines because there's a generational story there. Malthy Almeric is that generational story where the, he and him and Riz Ahmed sort of sit down at a table and they kind of talk about their past and what right. had gotten them there. And, and you find like, finally a lot of things um, end up making sense, but I thought Almeric was actually good um, for a limited time. He plays a character that I imagine that I can see him play or, or see him. Yes. Be. Yeah. This kind of like, um, somewhat absentee father who uh obviously had a rough relationship with his daughter thus you know causing her to 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 move to the u.s and cross paths with reuben yeah this sort of like kind of creepy but also charismatic like european dude who speaks multiple languages who's kind of overly friendly sometimes but i i think it was uh it was a good role for him i talked about how it was kind of melodramatic in the beginning because of the way the ending happens there are certain times where you you wish it was a little more melodramatic because there's there's a part in the middle where it kind of lulls you a little bit right like where he gets into the the lifestyle of the camp and whatnot and then there's these scenes where he's you know trying to keep track of where lou has been and how their band is doing and certain points where it jumps to him being like manic again yeah no i see what you mean and uh it, it does get a little bit lost in the in that middle like maybe they could have trimmed out five or ten minutes of that stuff and it might have felt a bit snappier um but, but still on the on the whole like uh, again in a year when we've been kind of starved for performance heavy indie films that that are telling interesting relatively new stories i think it's it's definitely a standout um and i'm glad that that amazon picked it up i i don't know like we were saying i don't know that amazon's going to clean up any awards with it but i would like to see more from darius martyr i'd like to see what he does next and then you know talking about what's coming next we have the end of December, the end of the year coming up. And there are, there are all sorts of random movies that are kind of crowding into that last week and week and a bit of the month, as it often happens, you know, those Christmas releases in years past, they would be the real awards contenders. A lot of people would be rushing out to theaters to get away from their relatives uh, over Christmas. We've got Wonder Woman 1984 coming out. We've got uh, one that I'm quite interested in, uh, Promising Young Woman, the Tom Hanks starring News of the World from Paul Greengrass, and many, many others. So there's going to be a lot for us to talk about. And I think we're we're going to devote our last episode of 2020 uh, to a few of those. So it might come out a bit later than it otherwise might. It may so happen that we'll have one episode going over all the movies that we caught up on uh, with their Christmas Day release dates or thereabouts. And then we might have another 
episode where we wrap up the year and we talk about, you know, what we've seen this year and what we feel like are really the best movies. Yeah, we'll definitely do a, a 2020 retrospective such as it is. It's going to be a little bit spotty than maybe previous versions of that episode would be just because <laughs> of how stupid this year is. But yeah, we're still going to do it because I think uh, um, in spite of all of the cancellations, there's still a lot of good stuff to talk about. And uh, we'll have the benefit of the whole kind of oversight of the whole year at that point. But yeah, so if you are curious to read a little bit more about what we think about these movies that we've just been talking about, Mank and Sound of Metal, you can head on over to kinetoscope.ca where I've got full reviews of both of those. And we'll probably try to get a season review of season two of The Mandalorian up at some point this month before the next episode comes out. So keep your eyes open for that. Check us out on Twitter at Jason Chen 16 and at J Robert Snow. Drop us a line like give our podcast a like subscribe do all that good stuff my name is jason chen in vancouver and my name is robert snow in toronto thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you next time